So we're in Tempe, Arizona, which is part of greater Phoenix area, right across the street from Arizona State University. And uh, Jared, I think you're a student there? Yes. Jared is a student at Arizona State University. We have another nice couple here. Alumni? Alumni. Your name is? Greg. Greg and? Lisa. Greg and Lisa, right. And Jared. And Radha Prana, who is leading the program with his wife, <coughs> Anupama. So, uh, oh, oh, this is great. Throat loss. So, do you have any questions? Yeah, anybody. Why are you here? Can we, do, do you want to do you want to go on the air or rather not? I've done many podcasts live. Okay, so if you come a little closer, because otherwise it's a little hard to hear. Why don't we get rid of that? Okay, yeah. So, why are you visiting us here in beautiful Phoenix when it's almost seventy degrees out and people are frozen in New York and Boston? Why are you here? Not a snowbird. <clears throat> uh, why am I here in Phoenix? Uh, because we have a center here, actually a few centers in the Phoenix area. And um, it's, I am in a particular, you could say spiritual religious order, in which it's my duty to travel and try to offer this knowledge. And so I thought I would actually am a snowbird because, I mean, there's a reason why I'm doing this right now in Phoenix and not Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's a great pleasure to try to share Krishna consciousness with people. And a great way from our experience is to be in Phoenix and also down in Tucson, which has an absolutely fantastic center. I'm going there tomorrow. Are you going there tomorrow? Yeah. And the restaurant there is called Govinda's. And we highly recommend for anyone wants to travel to Arizona in the winter. Best food in the world. Best one of the best temples in the world. We go there many, many times. Beautiful spiritual place to eat yeah, spiritually. Sun, yeah, Sundomini, the leader, is a very old friend of mine. She's like a sister to me. You're calling her old? Old friend. Okay. <laughs> We're both young, but she's an old friend. So any philosophical questions or historical, analytical, psychological? <coughs> Did you have something? Say that Do you want to go on here? Sure. That in general, I just feel a lot of pressure coming from the outside society to control me to live and look a certain way as I'm going through life. And this pressure that often causes me to think and changes my paradigm. I have paradigm shifts from this pressure. And that's currently what I'm experiencing a lot day to day. It's just living in a world where a lot of people are doing a lot of different things and uh, combating each other and also living in harmony at the same time. It's very interesting. Okay, that's certainly a serious point. Uh, first thing, I guess it occurs to me is you're right. I think, uh, yeah, we live in a world in which there is tremendous pressure uh, <clears throat> sorry, I think there's a very common term, the global village, and we've all heard about the global village. One thing people often forget is that there's no privacy in villages. 
and 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 in villages there is tremendous pressure to conform and uh i mean it's it's a truism that in america or any other country i've ever been to that if you go to big cosmopolitan cities you find a lot more diversity and if you go to a small town whether it's a small town in upstate new york or in you know, downstate mississippi or or even California, um, when you get less people together, they there seems to be a strong. It seems to be an inverse ratio. That the larger the population, the more diversity, and the smaller the population, the more pressure to conform. But what I wanted to say there is because nowadays we're creating this with technology, with surveillance video, which is everywhere, and the technology has recreated the psychological pressure of the village. So your generation, in a sense, is, is, is subject to all that pressure. You want to say something? Yeah, I was going to say that I feel it a lot more here in the city of Tempe and Phoenix, especially Phoenix. I feel that pressure more. I didn't really feel it as much as I did back in Michigan. Oh, really? Where are you from in Michigan? I'm from Milford, Michigan. Oh, where is it? So Milford <laughs> is right around here. Kind of south outside of Detroit? Yeah, outside of Detroit. And uh, exactly, I, I didn't really feel it as much right. before I came to the That's city. very interesting. And it kind of makes me not like the city. Not like Phoenix because of the pressure. Yeah, and I live right next to construction, by the way. Well, that's, that'll, that'll make you happy. Yeah. Um, what occurs to me is that, um, you know, people, I guess, feel pressure in different places because we're all different. And there could be, a, you know, all kinds of factors that contribute to that. So um, I think the greatest antidote is, is to develop a very strong sense with authenticity, you know, being real about it, not just as a technique, but really having a very strong sense of who you actually are yes. and, and what your goals are so that um, you have the courage and the confidence and the strength to pursue the life that you really want. And uh, that's why, for example, we're here together as sort of a little community here tonight. And um, there's a Sanskrit term, which is pretty common, satsanga, which means spiritual community or spiritual association. <clears throat> I remember when I, uh, when I was at Harvard and I would, I would sometimes visit the, the ISKCON temple in Boston, which is just over the bridge, over the Charles River. And when I would drive back, the bridge that goes right into Harvard Square has this old plaque on. There's a lot of old stuff in the window, but the, there's this plaque on the bridge that says the the community of the wise is the welfare of the world, which I thought was really well said. The community of the wise is the welfare of the world. And so it's really been recognized in all spiritual traditions that those who are serious and sincere about achieving spirituality in their own life and helping others, uh, they should and do form a natural community of natural support. So it's like on a team, let's say you're playing some sport and it's a team sport, uh, you know, it's the team plays as a team and we all know that there are 
the innumerable examples that a team can have a lot of all-stars, but they don't really play as a team and therefore they lose to other teams, maybe man for man or woman for woman are not as good, but they're, they have a lot more teamwork and therefore they win. So as human beings, this is the way we're wired neurologically. We're meant to live and work in communities, but there should be a community that we can really feel good about and the community, a community in which we really share the goals and, and we share the inspiration and the values. And so if we can discover a community like that, where our most noble aspirations and what we really want out of life for ourselves and others to, to be with people, to associate with people that share those values and are encouraging us and we're encouraging them. So I think, I don't want to be an amateur psychologist here, but I think from what you described, it seems like a get good spiritual community. Yes. I felt like I was kind of raised in a good spiritual community. Really? Yes. You mean your family or the greater, the larger community? The larger community with friends in the general area who I went to school with. What not, and those people are still out there back in Michigan right now. Well, that's you're very fortunate, and that helps me to understand more something else you said before. Because Phoenix, I mean, like other cities like LA, I mean, it's a very hard driving, materialistic place. I was just in the Bay Area, and it was kind of um, it was too much. You talk about hard driving, Silicon Valley kind of ruined the Bay Area in the sense that. Uh, you know, it's just you know money and it's yeah but phoenix is it's growing it's ambitious it's hard driving and really focused on material goals and so if you came from a smaller place with uh you know good people around you then i can understand why you're feeling the way you do yes thank you Yes. Shubham. 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 Yes. Oh, that means you're good. <laughs> so, did you have any? Yeah, I, I, I was reading through the email. Here, do you want to even ask your question? Uh, you want to come and ask your question? Sure. You have to come a little closer so people can hear you. This is Shubham. Hey, hi. Hello. So, uh, my question is kind of like very general. It's like, uh, it's like when do you realize that you are you are on the right path in spirituality? What is the like, when do you realize that okay, this is working? Oh, yeah, it's a very good question. <clears throat> um, a spiritual path. I mean, just. First of all, think more generally than just the notion of path. The path is supposed to lead somewhere. Of course, if you're just meandering just out, like like you're in one of those moods, no, I just want to get lost in the forest and have a good time, and eventually they'll send in the helicopters. But but I mean if you if you you're not just wandering around, but you're actually going somewhere, it's directional in that sense of being on a path then presumably you're on that path because you hope to achieve certain goals. And 
for example, when I drove from California out to Phoenix, I had the goal of arriving in Phoenix. And because I know the geography and topography fairly well from too many drives, um, I could see that, yeah, we're getting, we're getting closer to Arizona and now we cross the line and now we're, and so on a path, you, you should have certain goals. Of course, if I, let's say being on a path is not the same thing as just being in a religion, let's say, because what happens in, in every religion, it seems, is that a lot of people or else most people kind of, and I, and I really mean without exception, that most people sort of lose that noble ambition that I want to achieve higher consciousness. I want to know God. I want to, you know, like George Harrison, that great song. I really want to know you. I really want to go with you. And so I think George, George really expressed it very well. So it, if it just becomes, okay, this is my religion and I'm not particularly trying to get somewhere. I just want to, be in good standing with my community and and I know I should do this, so I'm doing it, so I feel good about myself. As opposed to really having noble but ambitious goals. I want to come to higher consciousness. Like George said, you know, I want to know you. I really want to know God. And so if you are really on a path and not just kind of hovering or just sort of, you know, hanging out in some religion but you're really on a path, then you're trying to get somewhere and, and you can see, am I getting there? I want to see certain changes in myself. I want to be in a higher consciousness. I want to free myself from certain bad habits that aren't really helping me. I would like to really um, associate with people that, 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 that can help me in a serious way and not just engage in frivolous association and so on. And so if you have the spiritual goals, which are pretty much universal in, in, in most spiritual paths, then, um, then you measure, am I getting there? Am I benefiting? And if you see that you're not really getting to where you want to go, there are two possibilities. Number one, this actually isn't the path. I need to call the spiritual AAA or something or get a better GPS. Or maybe I'm not practicing as seriously as I should. Maybe I have to be more serious about moving on this path and actually progressing. And of course, some and sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other. So I know what I wanted. I, um, I was mentioned before in the last class, so this is like, I guess, for the people out there who are on Facebook who are watching both the classes, kind of like an I Love Lucy moment, you know, rerun. But um, I had reached a point when I was 19 years old, I was a student at Berkeley, I had a scholarship at Berkeley, I had lots of friends and I had a good family. So I wasn't looking for religion as a way to fill a material void or some emotional thing. Or My material life was actually, you know, it's fine. <laughs> But I really, I wanted to know the highest truth. I wanted to know God, or what, you know, the absolute truth. And, and also I, I came to the explicit conclusion. I mean, I had this moment, I had this epiphany. I was on the Berkeley campus, uh, you know, the bear lair. Anyway, it's just this sort of 
the student professor restaurant <laughs> near the free speech area. I was watching all these people walk around. I had this vision that this is just a sophisticated intellectual form of animal life. Because animals basically, you know, pursue their bodily needs and selfish interests, defense, feeding, reproducing. And I thought that's really what's going on here. It's just a bunch of people, a bunch of selfish people running around, some of them pretending they know a lot about life. And um, so then I went to Europe. My older brother went to Europe, and so I, I had to go to Europe. So I, I made my summer tour, University of California charter flight, flew into Amsterdam, and um, I thought maybe in Europe I'll find some higher way of life. And after going all over Europe from the Arctic Circle to North Africa, I was mentioning, you know, surviving a you know motorcycle crash in a Greek island and motorcycle bounced into this gully and I literally lost consciousness and when I came to I was hanging onto a cliff. And uh just all kinds of adventures. And uh at the end of as I was nearing the end of my tour, I, I was keeping a little journal. And uh, I concluded that Europe, no offense to my friends in Europe, but that Europe was just sort of a, an older, more historical, culturally sophisticated version of the same animalism I found in California. And therefore, it wasn't Europe, it had to be something else. And so I was, in a, I was on a train going from Malaga back to Madrid to catch a train to Paris. And I wrote in my journal that when I get back to Berkeley, I have to stay in school because of the Vietnam War. I mean, dropping out of college is not an option. And um, I decided my project was going to be to try to understand God. I mean, by God, I didn't mean necessarily any sectarian idea. By that, I meant the highest truth, just whatever is the ultimate truth behind all of this. And I think not to look for an ultimate truth is really to abandon the whole project of philosophy and, and rationality. Because you're always trying to reduce things to their simplest expression and find the one equation that explains all equations. And anyway, there's the, the Greek, going back to the Greeks, their, um, their discovery of generalization and categorization as a means of rationalizing the world. So anyway, so I got back to Berkeley and somehow or other I kept that um, I kept that vow I made to myself. And I remember every day when I got up and walked to the campus, I was I was really trying to understand who am I? What is God? Why am I here? I, I really was uh, and then in the midst of that intense searching, Prabhupada came to our university. And uh, I didn't think so highly of Indian Swamis because I'd gone to one to hear one Swami speak a year or two before for it was an assignment in sociology class with Professor Zablowski. And so um, and the Swami that spoke, he didn't really say anything. He just kept saying, relax, everything is all right. There's no problem. I, I literally almost burst out laughing. In fact, people around me were starting to get offended. So. You know, I was like 18 years old. <laughs> and so um, so I thought, is this another Swami? The devotees invited me to come and hear their guru speak. And uh, so I walked into the auditorium, and uh, Prabhupada came in. And as soon as he walked into the room, I could just see this is very different. 
Because in those days, I mean, you know, we didn't trust the government, we didn't trust our teachers, our parents, you know, we loved them, but they didn't really understand. They, they didn't even understand that the Vietnam War was evil. And so, uh, but when Prabhupada walked in, I could see this person actually has real authority. He was just, he was different. He just seemed to me like a commander. And then he spoke and then I, so, so then I, I realized that, um, that this really actually is a spiritual path. And I didn't think, I wasn't fanatical. I respected every person I met who I felt in their own way was sincerely trying to serve or understand God. I, I gave them great respect. I was never, I think, a religious fanatic by nature. But I understood that here's a real spiritual science. That's what I want, spiritual science. And so here I am 50 years later, actually almost 60 years, 51 years later, which is means I joined the movement two years before I was born. Just joking. So, um, and so, in one sense, if you've been doing something a very long time, you know, maybe you've advanced or maybe you've become very um, sort of uh, negligent. Because if you think about it, when you repeat something over and over again, two things happen. Number one, you become really good at it. Like, and, and But they say, like, I could do that in my sleep, which means that sometimes you really are kind of mentally asleep while you're doing it. And so repetition, practice by repetition, it makes you good at something, but also you can start paying, stop paying attention to it. And so you see people who've been practicing, say, bhakti yoga, Krishna consciousness for a long time, you can become good at it, but you can also become kind of sleepwalking through it. And you're, you've forgotten that you're actually on a path, you're trying to find the truth. And what I sometimes tell devotees is that because you have all these stories, we, we have a magazine called Back to Godhead that uh, we used to read. And anyway, it's uh, they used to have this genre, these articles, like how I came to Krishna consciousness. And it was, you know, they were interesting stories, like I was searching for the truth, I was searching for God. That would be a, like, a very common thing. And they were interesting stories, sincere people. But so what I say is, okay, I was searching for God. And I joined a movement, but I'm still searching for God in the sense that I'm still trying to advance in my understanding. I'm still trying to come to a higher realization. And so it's not that, okay, I was searching, then I found a truth, I joined, and now I can do other things. But it's really a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong path of trying to understand in, in a deeper and deeper way trying to come closer and closer to krishna and and so in that sense if you remember that you're on a path you don't just belong to a religion then you're checking yourself it's like athletes or let's say training for advanced competition olympics or or world cup or you know or, or whatever super bowl i mean they're constantly they time themselves they have all this technology now like what's my heartbeat rate What's my heart rate? You know, how many calories did I burn? And this and that, and the muscle density. And my God, it's like a. I knew the world had a problem. Cause I remember when I, I used to, I used to teach at the University of Florida, and I, I used to live there also. And um, I remember one time I went to the bookstore. I was looking for a philosophy book. So I was doing a Western philosophy project, and I was looking over where are the philosophy books. And I found there's one little shelf of philosophy books, which is absolutely overwhelmed by a whole wall. I mean, it was just next entire wall of books for physical education courses and so i thought that's florida 
So, um, so if you really remember that you're on a path and don't just go into this unconscious cruising mode. So like, is it okay to expect a reward from the path? Like, I'm like, I'm from India, so I read the stories, you know? Like, I do know you get behavioral changes for beginners are the impatient. The least expectation is I'll become calm, I'll become peaceful, I'll be really good. Like, what's up with that? Then there are stories, you know, like the end goal is like the people. I, the story is like you close your eyes and you see something, that was that was really a great description of uh, sort of apathetic religion um <laughs> okay <laughs> the goal is the goal is to really come back to who you really are because if you understand that you are a spiritual being, you are an eternal soul who somehow are trapped in a world in which you have to enter into these bodies and then have death experiences. And so it's like, let's say you're homesick and you want to get back. Let's say you've been traveling and going here and there and maybe even went to jail in some foreign country. And finally, you're free, and all you want to do is get back home. So I'd say that's the real mood of Krishna consciousness, back to your loving family, back to, back to your real life. And so Prabhupada used this expression, back to home, back to Godhead. It's interesting how he used the word Godhead. Godhead is actually a, originally a, a term in Christian theology, and that's because it got so complicated with the Trinity and this and that and the other thing that it was sort of a word which means, you know, the entire package. And so because we know Krishna can expand himself, Ram and Vishnu and so on, so Prabhupada used that word Godhead, but it, it, it's going back to your real home. It's going back to your real life, to your pure consciousness, your real happiness. And uh, as I explained in the last segment, I feel like I'm on TV, the last segment, that... Uh, we can't be the body. It's, it's not possible, uh, based on what we know, that we are the body. Because at, at the deepest level, Descartes pointed this out, Descartes, that um, it's interesting, in the 1600s, when they had the uh, scientific revolution at Descartes, Sir Francis Bacon kind of rediscovered or rediscovered science, what we now call a scientific method. But there was another philosopher, Descartes, who was also a great scientist, which is often forgotten. People dismember his substance dualism, but he was actually a great scientist whose discoveries are still being used, even in technology. But Descartes, Bacon said, the way you understand the world is that you systematically study it through what we now call the empirical method. Descartes said something else. He wasn't denying the validity of empiricism, but he said that whatever you study you do through your consciousness. Unconscious people don't make good scientists. And so, so therefore he said, the, the real center of your knowledge is consciousness itself. And, and, and so therefore we should try to understand ourselves. We should go in, we should go within 
it's kind of a yoga thing. We, should, we that the the most important truth we find not by going out into the world, but by going within ourselves. And that's when he said, you know, if I doubt everything, is there something I cannot doubt? Is there something I cannot be skeptical about? And he said, yes. He said, kojito ergo sum. The fact that I'm asking this question means that I'm conscious, and if I'm conscious, I exist. Because if I didn't exist, how could I even ask the question? So, so if you're trying to find out, who, so as far as being the body, all of us, I believe, at one time, were you know three years old or five years old or six or seven, and and yet, and you know that was you. If you talk about your childhood, you say, yeah, when I was a little kid, it was you. When I was a little kid, it wasn't someone else. And then when you were a teenager. But the fact is, it's not the same body. The body is different. This, by, this example, by the way, Krishna gives in the Gita. Just as in this body, the embodied soul experiences childhood, adolescence, and then old age. <clears throat> so the body not just changing, but actually becoming something else. That's actually the main point of Buddhism, at least in the original Buddhism as, as, as taught by the Buddha, that um, their shunyavad, their sense of voidism, they don't mean that, they don't mean that um, nothing exists. That's not, they explicitly don't mean that. What they mean is, in the shunyavad of Buddhism, is that um, you cannot point to any object in the world and say, it is just that thing, because the next moment it's already changed. And uh, by the way, these ideas were not just in India. For example, there's a very famous pre-Socratic philosopher named Heraclitus, who was contemporary of Buddha, and who taught that you cannot step in the same river twice, because the second step, it's a different river. Some of the water is poured out wherever the water, you know, the mouth of the river is, and there's new water coming. So you can't step in the same river twice, which is very Buddhist. And my version of that is that you can't breathe in the same body twice. And yet in contrast to this perpetual flux and transformation of material things, you, despite all the changes, are the same person. You were the three-year-old, the five-year-old, the, you know, whatever, nine, 11, 14 and a half. You know, it was you. It was the same person. At the deepest level, it was actually you. And so you have a body which is constantly changing, and then there's you, who's always the same. Hence, you're not the body. So therefore, philosophers, I mean, whether it's Greco-Roman philosophers or philosophers in India, or in other parts of the world, you know, they, they ask this question, who am I? And that question was suggested in the, in, in the Greek world, ancient Greek world, there was an island uh, called Delphi, still there. And there was a, an oracle there. There was a, a, there would always be a priestess who was, who was said to be able to communicate with the god Apollo, Surya was able to, uh, and, and people would go there from all over the Greek world, and they would ask questions to Apollo through the priestess. And then she would channel the response of, of the god. 
And so there was a motto inscribed there at that temple, that famous temple of Delphi, which was know thyself. And so at least in Western civilization, it kind of comes from that, know thyself. And so um, Krishna conscious means to know who we really are. And of course, when we find out who we are, it's certainly not the body that's absurd because the body is always changing. But we also don't know ourselves in isolation, in, in isolation because we're part of something greater. We are born into a world where there's a lot going on. Like there's a whole universe out there in, in our planet. You know, they talk now, one of the arguments against accidental or purely naturalistic evolution, not only of species, but also even of uh, just life in general, that there could be life at all is that the the conditions on earth are sort of impossibly against the odds ideally suited to produce life according to the known laws of nature and so we're part of a huge ecosystem what's left of it and so therefore to know yourself means know everyone else Because you can't know, because if you look at other people, it's not that you are not your body, but, but she is or he is. And so, and Krishna gives the example in the Gita, he said, knowledge is like the sun. So what does he mean? He says, Suryavadhyanam, knowledge which is like the sun. When the sun rises, it illumines everything simultaneously uh, and equally. Like if the sun rises in your neighborhood, everything is illumined simultaneously and equally and so when you have when you when you achieve self-realization when you begin to understand yourself you understand everyone else when you begin to perceive yourself as a spiritual being within the body you start to perceive everyone else the same way there's no such thing as just local self-realization either the sun is rising or it's not rising so when and and ultimately if you ask the question how do i exist I, I'll, I'll raise here the famous philosophical argument for god or for something like a god which is the argument from contingency contingency of course just means dependence like if someone says are you coming and i say it's contingent mean it, it depends on something else so everything that we can experience in the world everything that we can experience by our own senses or through the extension of our senses through microscopes and telescopes and so on and and by pure reasoning everything that we can experience in the world depends on something else for its existence for example you have a body because you have parents and even if you study astronomy you know that suns come from stars come from something else and so everything in the universe is contingent on something else and so therefore the question is someone could say well maybe it's just solid state theory it's just always existed but that's not the real question the real question is why does anything exist because we can imagine at least we could imagine the possibility that nothing ever existed And yet we know that a lot of things exist. And so, but if everything depends on something else, how did anything ever come to exist? And the philosophical answer is that there has to be a non-contingent being. 
There has to be a being that does not depend on other things for its existence. And by the way, this of course is Aristotle's argument. Aristotle was not the most religious guy in the world. He was more, you know, the science thing. But in Aristotle's term, a non-contingent being for Aristotle is the unmoved mover, which is basically the same argument. We see that everything is moved by something else. So there must be an unmoved mover, something which precedes all dependent beings. And so if you understand that, then to really understand yourself and how you exist at all and who had the power to put you in illusion, who had the power to put you in a body, who had the power to create human bodies which are almost infinitely more complex than our most advanced computers. I mean, if you say that, like I was mentioning in the last class, that there's a revolution going on in microbiology for the last few decades. Because Darwin, when he made his theory, had a certain concept of biological complexity. And then, of course, that concept became refined and scientists discovered actually it's much more complex than that. But lately now, it, it, they're discovering that it's, it's like exponentially more sophisticated, more complex than we ever imagined. I mean, they have, they have cells that have motors in them. It's like little motors. There are transportation delivery systems which appear to be appear to be somewhat digital within cells it's like it's it's ridiculous and what they're finding now at the level of microbiology it's just it's it's ridiculous it's crazy how complex it is and so more and more the idea that it's just the wind blew the sun shone there was there was seismic activity and you get these ridiculously impossibly sophisticated supercomputers that reproduce I mean, my little Mac Air here does not reproduce. I have to buy another one eventually. It's just reproduction itself, that, that you have these machines that actually go to each other and actually produce, you know, in theory, forever. They can produce an infinite number of other models. It's to say that this just happened by laws of nature, things bouncing around is striking more and more scientists and philosophers as idiotic. And, which it is, of course. And so therefore, if you want to understand yourself, you have to understand where you come from. That's the first statement of uh, Brahma Sutra, Vedanta Sutra, Tato Brahma Jigyasa. Well, first statement is we should try to understand the absolute, not just relative things. And then uh, the absolute is that, which is the source of everything. So I don't know about you, but personally, I find great ideas pleasing. I mean, I, that's the kind of life I think I always wanted, where, where you use your God-given intelligence, you try to understand great things, you try to understand yourself, know thyself, as it was said in Temple of Apollo in Delphi. And so if someone says, well, that's nice, but I'm not really interested in knowing who I ultimately am, where it all comes from, uh, okay. But then in a sense, what we're dealing with is a sort of a sophisticated form of animal life. Where, you know, if I, I'm concerned, like you go on these, air, these flights, you get these airline magazines that try to glamorize like eating, and just sleep in this hotel, the animal propensities, and it's just, well, 
I won't say the obvious here. There's this great proverb in Sanskrit. Ahara nidra bhaya samanya metat pashubhi narana dharmehi teshaṁ adhiko vishesha dharmena hina pashubhi samana very interesting. It, it, that means in Sanskrit that uh, as far as ahara eating, nidra sleeping, bhaya defending oneself, and maitram and and sex, samanyameta. Uh, there, this is the quality pashubhinarana of human beings with animals. Human beings and animals are equal in that respect. And in fact, some of the animals have far far greater sexual prowess they can really just go all night and so and in terms of eating and and so it's not that human beings are superior to animals in these in these functions but the proverb says it is in dharma it is in the ability to discover the ultimate laws of the universe and where they come from that is the specific or distinguishing vishesha. That is the distinguishing superiority of human beings. Therefore, dharmena hina pasubhisana samana. People who are devoid of this or who lack this interest and in understanding all these things, they're equal to animals. So one one last little point on this topic and it is actually the idea that philosophical materialism the philosophical materialism is the natural sort of worldview of empiric science is of course philosophically absurd and most of the great scientific discoveries were done by religious people for example copernicus discovered the heliocentric solar system because he was inspired by religious ideas from Plato and Christianity, the idea that Plato talks about the sun. If you know Plato, he talks about the sun as God and the center. You know, it's a symbol you find all around the world. The sun is a symbol of light, hence of knowledge, of energy. And so inspired by religious ideas, he thought, well, since God made the world, it should be the sun. And there's a very long list. I mean, there, there are dozens and dozens of the greatest scientists who ever lived who actually had this religious idea in, in various forms. But, and if you go all the way back to Greco-Roman times, they had, a, a, among intellectuals, they had this populist, popular philosophy, which was sort of logos philosophy. Logos, from which we get the word logic, from which we get all the ologias like uh, physiology, biology, geology, that's all logos. It's the logos, a rational account of a particular area. And so this logos philosophy in, in, in the classical world was that God is ultimately a supremely rational being. You know, not just jealous, not just angry, not just suffering, uh, but actually a supremely and infinitely rational being and this divine reason within the mind of God they call the logos and since God created the world that logos is everywhere in the universe it's within our minds 
and it's within the creation, it's within nature. And therefore, using our own logos, our own divine reason, we can discover that same reason, that same lawfulness, that same logic in the natural world. And it was this idea that led to the scientific revolution. Because imagine the, an alternative. What if it was the case that the world is hopelessly chaotic, it's not lawful, and even if there were laws, were made in such a way that we can't discover them, and the true nature of the universe is chaos, irregularity, non-uniformity, unlawfulness, and therefore you can never really safely generalize because there are no universal laws. You need universal facts to sustain generalizations. And therefore don't waste your time studying the universe because you can't solve chaos. And so instead the idea of a lawful universe even the, the principle of, 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 of uniformity in empiric science, that we can receive, as we do, light rays, let's say, from you know billions of miles away, and, and yet we are justified in drawing conclusions by passing that you know light through our prisms and, and, and reading how the light breaks down, and we can tell what kinds of gases the light pass through and you know, how far away it, it, its source and everything. That's basically what astronomers do nowadays. They analyze light. And so, but what if the laws of nature are different? What if other parts of the galaxy have a completely different set of natural laws? And so this belief in uniformity, this belief in regularity, this belief in lawfulness in the physical world actually comes from the idea of a rational creator. So that's what we're supposed to be doing as human beings. You have a question? I have a question. Please. Oh, put you on the air here. You want no makeup. My name is Greg, and my question to you is kind of playing a devil's advocate a little bit. Oh, boy. Great. So what? <laughs> I have a car. I have a beautiful wife, two beautiful daughters. I have health insurance. I have a job, I have a good education. We live in a great country. Yeah, there's a God. I grant you that. And he's I pray to him. But what why do I even have to worry about all the stuff you just talked about? Things are great. Okay. Hey, who let this guy in? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> he keeps challenging the word Prabhupada's word miserable. No, it's okay. Granted all that you said, not the question, but the describing the facts of your life. And um, even in the context of the Bhagavad Gita, those blessings you have would be seen as, as blessings and as a sign of your own virtue in this life or the next life. In other words, it's not for nothing that you receive these blessings. So I would say the reason we should be concerned about the other stuff that I was talking about is because otherwise we are clearly remaining in an infantile state of consciousness. 
if you think of, let's say, child behavior, the young little child, as you know, raising daughters, uh, they you basically give to them, and they take what you give, what you give them. You know, you feed them. This little infant obviously can't, you know, can't feed itself. So you have to feed them. You have to take care of them and bathe them and protect them in so many ways. You have to educate them. And if a child, having received all of that from the parents, grows up and feels no gratitude, no interest in the parents, like just keep those checks coming. I guess maybe now it's PayPal or something. I'm dating myself. but So a child that takes so much from loving parents, feels no gratitude, has no desire to, to reciprocate. Uh, I know myself, I can say that with my own parents, that were both passed away, but I had very good parents, very loving parents. Not exactly members of the Hare Krishna movement, but nonetheless, very good parents. And um, I found, I've been finding actually for many, many years now, that the older I get, the more grateful I feel. And so I would say, if you are developing as a soul, your gratitude increases toward the ultimate uh funding source and and um with gratitude with love comes uh that you want to know that person you want to know more about that person i know i have i have uh i had two brothers who are living one passed away many years ago but and i know they've um everyone you know every so often they'll send me they'll send around email like i just found this you know like a picture of our parents or or i didn't know this about them or i mean to give an example i, I had a my mother was really very intelligent and she of course when she grew up she couldn't go to college you know the depression she couldn't go to college because there was only enough money for one the, there were three daughters only one could go to college so she had to work so her older sister would go to college and my father also just, you know, people didn't go to college as commonly as they do now back then. And so um, so she was, she was a high school graduate. And at one point, they, um, they sort of fell on hard times. We were always sort of like middle class, but then at a certain point, they fell on hard times. And uh, later, they actually became very wealthy beyond anything they'd imagined. But um, so she got a job at UCLA in the medical school, the lowest job they had because she had no experience in the typing pool in the typing pool and, and, and she was so bright that um, within a couple of years she was actually the director of the pediatric board and received an award as the best of, of the entire staff at UCLA Medical School she got the like the I think for the whole UCLA like top Bruin and the <laughs> and when she was you know had to go to assisted living and whatever um i was helping to clean out some of her papers and things with my brothers and i discovered something i never knew that when she retired they had to hire four people to replace her that um she got a letter from the dean of the medical school you know long letter full of gratitude and, and she, she was like really good friends with the dean she got a letter from the chancellor of ucla she got a letter, letter from the president of the University of California and from the governor. 
and she never mentioned this. And, and like I said, she, you know, just finished high school. And so it was really, I was really pleased to, you know, learn that stuff, which I never knew. And so when you love someone or you learn to love someone, uh, you, you know, it's fun to find, to know about them, to know more about them. And, and you, you remember that old song, To Know Him Is To Love Him? Do you no. know? Teddy Bears? Phil Spector actually wrote that. You can find it on YouTube, and he's the sort of the skinny guy with the guitar. But anyway, so I think it's natural when, when you begin to realize that someone is a source of all my blessings and to want to know more about that person, to develop affection and love. And to, and I would say even on a different level, um, I think it's my nature that I have a very strong drive to understand where I am. Like if I go someplace, I wanna know where I am. I wanna know exactly, you know, I, I just want to understand, I want to know. I don't want, I don't like ignorance. Like if suddenly the lights go out and we're in darkness, I don't find that to be particularly pleasing. You know, I wanna put the lights back on. And uh, I know that in, in, in Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico, one of the things they do for paying customers is they take people down this train very you know deep into the caverns and then they turn the lights out and there's a darkness that we've actually never experienced because you know there's all what astronomers call light pollution i mean there's just so much light in our world and people have, and they gasp and they scream and because they've never experienced that degree of darkness and so, you know, you should know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I think knowledge is liberating. And if it's, it gets back to the old philosophical question of truth and beauty, is the truth beautiful and is the beautiful true? And of course, from our perspective, yes, that the truth is beautiful and, and, and beautiful things, they're truly beautiful, are true and so, I think our natural aesthetic aesthetic impulses to be drawn to beauty, to be drawn to harmony, to be drawn by great a great understanding. And that's why people climb mountains, because you look down and you see what you could never see before. You see your city for the first time. And so the, the, this natural attraction of knowledge, of understanding, of beauty, of and all the all the drive of, of gratitude of wanting to understand the person who really deserves your first love i think those are all excellent reasons that would motivate someone to to try to learn this may I ask you sure certainly may Two for the price of one. Two for the price. <laughs> so it sounds to me like you're saying there's more to my life than just my own willpower, my own drive to succeed, my own acquisition of cars and homes, and and that it's not all about me and my and my pushing through society to grab whatever I possibly can for my own comfort. That I should be have blessings and be concerned about where some of this came from. Is there more out there than just my own effort? Uh, funny you should ask that. Yes, there certainly is. Because, for example, you didn't choose your birth. 
although in one sense you'd say maybe a result of karma, but it was something given to you. And and as we know, uh, when you have kids, it is a type of biological Russian roulette because sometimes very good loving parents come up with some uh, unusual creatures. And so, 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 so when parents are blessed to have good children, loving children, or the children are blessed with health. And of course, not that you love them less if they're not healthy, but still to have good children is just, you know, it's such a blessing. It's something you, you can't do by yourself. That's been given to you. And so, um, and actually, it's interesting, you know, studies show, because they're, they're doing all kinds of studies now, positive psychology, Penn, University of Pennsylvania, ICI Ivy League School, they have a whole program or department in positive psychology. And so I think, what was his name? Um, oh my God, he, he was a professor at Brandeis, actually. Uh, he started this whole positive psychology thing and he was really well known in the 60s. We were all reading his book, um, Maslow. I think his name was. Never the tribe. So. <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Back. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Doesn't look Jewish. I'll tell you later. So. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so we are so dependent. You know, no man is an island. We, society, we are, nowadays, of course, live in an age which, which glorifies narcissism, and now we have the narcissist in chief. But actually, uh, there's a balance. You know, we are individuals, but we are also uh, members of groups. We are private, we are public. And, and, and as we know, I mean, you couldn't even acquire speech. And it's very, very questionable how much you could think if you didn't have a language, because we tend to think verbally. And so, I mean, the fact that you can walk out the door and, you know, someone doesn't just kill you, which is, you know, it's very likely the, the odds are very small something when you walk out the door that'll happen it's because we live in society and the, the fact that i mean the social contract for example let's say you're driving your car say you're going 40 miles an hour and you see a green light so you just keep going you are placing your life you're staking your life on the social contract that the people going the other way will respect the red light or that the people in charge of maintaining the traffic lights working properly have done their job. They're not sabotaged. They haven't been just neglected. And so every time you drive your car, every time you walk down the street, you are staking your life on the social contract that other people are going to, you know, follow the contract they signed up for. And so there's no such thing as just, you know, purely individual life. It doesn't exist. A human baby is put in the forest or wherever, I guess here it'd be in the desert. The human baby is just put somewhere 
and perhaps fed. I mean, if you take a human baby and just maybe feed it, protect it, but don't really give it community, the baby will just, you know, practically be like a vegetable. So we are as much social as we are individual. We are as much public as we are private. And obviously our society has gone way over to the side of sort of a, a false individualism because the amount of conformity nowadays is unbelievable. I mean, you experienced that. That was the point you were making. That, you know, in, in a city or in a society which prides itself on, on individualism, actually there's the degree of conformity is actually quite a lot. In California, there's a very clear, highly regimented way to be a free thinker. And as soon as you, you know, stray even slightly from the norms of free thinking, you know, they'll kill you, at least socially. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's a question of balance, really being yourself, knowing yourself, pursuing a life which is authentic for you, and at the same time, remembering paying your social obligations and, and ultimately your obligations to God. So the idea that why shouldn't I just do what I want? Because, first of all, it's criminal. I mean, people really just did what they wanted. Like, you know, like you're sexually attracted to someone. Okay, get out of your club, you know, bonk them on the head and you know, drag them back to your cave. If people really just do what they want, we just have barbarism. Savagery. One of my favorite nonsensical sayings is that we shouldn't impose our values on others. Every time you put up a traffic light, you're, it, it's, you put up a traffic light, it's a trade-off, security versus freedom. No traffic light, you have the freedom just to go when you want. Traffic light, less freedom, more security. Every law, every, in, every English sentence which contains the auxiliary verb should or must is a value judgment and a metaphysical claim. I saw this, the, the reason I, I discovered, I, I got, what got me thinking about this like lunacy of don't impose your values. I mean, I mean you shouldn't impose them inappropriately, but they had, what happened is in, um, in Minnesota, they were trying to curb pornography because children were becoming, you know, damaged by it and everything. And so therefore they, in Minnesota, they passed this sort of this serious or stiff anti-pornography law. And what happened is they, they phrased the law, the language of the law was phrased in such a way that a, an art book in one of the leading museums in Minneapolis somehow violated the law. And so, I mean, a lot of people realize, well, there's something wrong. We have to maybe rephrase the law or something. But they were interviewing this guy, sophisticated guy who was the head of the museum, and he actually said, we shouldn't impose our values on others. And what I thought was so comical about this, is that's exactly what he's doing. His value is, that we shouldn't impose our values on others. And he was insisting that, that value be made into law. And if you if, if you really don't want to impose your values on others, then we have to immediately roll back, for example, all the laws against rape, murder, theft, 
because the, those are those laws are imposing values namely you shouldn't kill other people you shouldn't rape other people you shouldn't steal from other people so there's no such thing as not imposing values as far as who should impose the values well in fact every society does every community does and are they the right values if they have a law that says uh, let's say you can't drive at 70 miles an hour in a school zone and you enforce the law, you are imposing your values, namely that children shouldn't be run down by crazy drivers. But that's a value judgment. It's a correct value judgment, but nonetheless a value judgment. So the idea that we shouldn't impose our values is just like, it. it's one of the most amazing examples of nonsense that I've ever heard in my life. The question is, what are the right values? What? Okay, we're triple dipping here. <laughs> That's a lengthy explanation. You've convinced me that I need to be thankful and have a lot of gratitude and be more conscious that there's other things other than me and be more conscious that there is some sort of a God or higher power that plays a role in my life. I wish there was some way for me to have a better conscious connection with God. That isn't so complicated, a, a, a simple way, something that I could practice at home, some sort of improvement to my conscious contact with God. Suggestions? Well, funny you should say that. We have a we have a number of fine products here. <laughs> but wait, call today. <laughs> um, yes. Bhakti Yoga. You know, honk if you like Bhakti Yoga. It's the thing is that we are not inviting any of you to be guinea pigs in the sense that Bhakti Yoga is basically as we're presenting it, has been practiced by many, many, many millions of people for thousands of years with great success. And so it's, uh, it's certainly past the test of time with, what do they say, flying colors. So take the Maha Mantra, the great mantra, Hare Krishna. Uh, Hare, it begins, it's actually a lady's first mantra. Because hooray is an appeal to uh, the feminine aspect of the absolute truth. And Krishna, of course, is, is masculine. And, and then Rama means the source of all pleasure. God is the source of all happiness, true pleasure. So there's a statement in, in, in our tradition, a Sanskrit statement that abhita twan nama nami know that that the name of God actually is God, in the sense that God is not merely sound, but that God is fully present in the name. When I was at UCLA ages ago, I wrote an essay on the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem, temple built by Solomon, envisioned by David and then built by Solomon. And what I found startling and, and, and was that 
throughout that section of the Old Testament that talks about the desire to build the temple, the plans to build it, the actual construction, the grand opening, and you know, throughout that, it's emphasized repeatedly that it is a temple built to the name of God. And it said, just as God lives in heaven, so he lives by his name in the temple. It was a temple to the name of God. And uh, when my mother passed away, uh, I spoke at her funeral and I, um, of course it was a Jewish service. And I, what I did is I, I looked at the translation of the mourner's Kaddish, the, the prayer that's recited for the departed. And I looked at the translation of it, my Hebrew is not fluent, oh, I can still read the letters. And um, I, uh, I was actually quite, I found it very surprising, interesting, and, and this, that there are two main topics in that mourner's prayer. Number one is the glory of God's name, the power of God's name. And the second topic was the earnest desire that all the people of the world, not just one community, but all the people of the world receive the mercy of God. And it, of course, it's very famous. It's often been noted by Jewish scholars that the Kaddish prayer says nothing about lamentation or mourning. It rather is a very positive thing. It talks about the glory of God's name and the, the wish that all the people, all the nations of the earth be blessed by God. And uh, I know that when I was at, at my uh, nephew's bar mitzvah, you know, I was asked to say something, I mean, to recite one part of the prayer. So I got Baruch Shem Kavod Malhuto Lelambaya. Blessed is the holy name of God, the holy name forever and ever. And so this idea that God is present in his name, it's certainly in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's in Buddhism, Pure Land Buddhism, that the name is 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 the holy figure it's actually found throughout religions the power and and so the idea here is that because god is absolute his the name of god is actually also god it, it, it's a manifestation of god in fact the sanskrit term is nama rupa in the form of the name the form of god as his or her own name because we have radha krishna and so the absolute truth has a masculine and feminine aspect because it would be a very dull spiritual world indeed, right? If without that, I remember one time when I was living in Miami many years ago, and Miami Beach actually, and I, I read the Miami Herald, this little article I something caught my eye that uh, in, they had discovered a new Dead Sea Scroll which was confusing the scholars because it explicitly talked about God and his consort. So the idea here is that there is, I mean, in many species of life and even beyond material species, there is a masculine principle, there's a feminine principle. And as the French say, vive la différence, you know, long live the difference. So there, there is actually in a good man and a good woman, there is a type of, sort of perfect complementarity. There is something seriously missing if it's only men or if it's only women. And so this, this sort of perfect complementarity is actually found in the absolute truth. And so that male and female, 
in, in some ways define our world uh, because they exist in the absolute. And there is a supreme male and supreme female principle and together they are actually the absolute truth. Which, I mean, I have such great memories of my, you know, adolescent parties when we were actually very innocent, you know, back in those days, we were actually sort of ladies and gentlemen, certainly compared to nowadays. And, um, but I remember being young and the friendship between the boys and the girls, especially because we weren't engaging in, you know, at a young age, we weren't engaging in, in sexual relations. And, uh, I mean, it was just this deep affection and friendship. And so when I heard that the spiritual world is just this eternal middle school party, I thought, where do I sign? And so, so the Maha Mantra is that it's Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, so on. So it's, it's, it's the complete absolute truth with the male and female aspects. Which, which are the source, those truths are the source of our world. And in a sense, that's why romantic love is so powerful in our world, and of course often leads to suffering because people have false expectations, but, but romantic love is so powerful because ultimately it's, it's who we are. Ultimately, we are souls who are meant to experience romantic love both to relish it, to admire it in the, in, in the highest being and, and ourselves. So, so that Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna, it's, um, I think it's great. Krishna, by the way, the word Krishna is etymologized within the tradition as first the word Krish, which means to attract. It's like a verbal root, which means to attract, to pull. Think of, for example, why these two words are so similar traction like a tractor pulling something and attraction traction and attractive and because the same thing in german seeung and unseeung so because attraction is mental traction something that pulls your mind so krish means that that god is most attractive and uh, na is considered an abbreviation of the Sanskrit verbal root nun, which means to experience pleasure, as in the word ananda, which is just nun with a prefix, uh, ananda, which means intense pleasure. So Krishna means that he's all attractive and the source of pleasure. And Rama, I won't go into all the Sanskrit grammar here, the causative form of a noun, but, but, you know, take my word for it that that Rama actually means source of pleasure. In fact, there's a there's a, a verse in the tradition, Ramante Yogi No Anante, that the yogis or the spiritual practitioners, what it means, or it doesn't mean, you know, people in their local yoga salon, but it means spiritual practitioners enjoy in the infinite. They find pleasure in the infinite. So Ramante Yogi No Anante. Satyananda in the pleasure of truth. Because as we know, you can enjoy a lie. One great example is anyone here, anyone else here, big Jane Austen fan? Is it just me? Jane, Jane Austen. Austen. You were supposed to read Jane Austen, but, but oh. anyway, I'm a, <laughs> so one of her books, which is Mansfield Park, 
uh, at Did the you end. You compared that to Bhagavad Gita. What's that? Yeah, I gave a talk on that. Yeah, I gave a talk on that actually in the village hall, just two or three doors down from where her house, but where she wrote the books. But at the end, the, the hero of the story, who's uh, Edward Bertram, is it Edmund? Edmund, Edmund Bertram, finally recognizes the heroine Fanny Price is the girl he, that he really does love and should love, and that he was attracted to this other girl who was very beautiful and sophisticated, but basically amoral, which is not acceptable in Jane Austen's world. And because something happens and she just sort of reveals herself as not being an evil person, but she's sort of brought up in an unfortunate way and she really just has no moral compass. Even when it involves great suffering to the family of the man who thinks he loves her, she has no moral compass, even about his own family. And then he has this realization, I think he says to her that I loved an image of you that I had in my mind. Of course, everyone's had this experience, you know. But, you know, I, I, I loved an image of you. And now that I see who you actually are, we really are not meant for each other. And so that idea of loving an image, but that's, for example, one can think that I'm the life of the party. But, you know, in other words, you can have all kinds of ideas, vain ideas about yourself, which aren't really true. And so your pleasure is not based on truth. It's based on a misunderstanding of reality, like self-centeredness. So it said Satyananda that the, the spiritual practitioners enjoy in the bliss of what is true. So Ramante Yoginananda Satyananda Chiratmani Iti. Therefore, Rama Padena Sao Param Brahmai Vidhiyate. Therefore, the absolute truth is called by the name Rama. Because if you know Sanskrit, you know that Rama means a source of pleasure. So it's very positive. I mean, it's this amazingly positive mantra. And, uh, oh, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Oh, for our viewers out there, potential clients. Krishna, Krishna, Hare, Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Rama, Rama, Hare, Hare. So that's Maha. The Sanskrit word Maha is great, from which we get the Latin Magna, the Magna Garden magnificent everything so maha mantra and it's portable you can take it across international borders has no it's moving the musical form too yeah no moving parts except your tongue and uh yeah it's great you can just take it everywhere and just always keep yourself in yoga so maybe we'll stop there um I'd like to thank you all and uh, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. His Holiness, uh, Dananda Maharaj, is an uh, incredible pioneer. It's just a pleasure that he's right here at Bhakti Yoga Tempe. Mind, body, soul, mischief. He's uh, our, our, our founding, uh, I would say, because they've been coming for a while. And. Uh, <laughs> I don't need to be on this. Because <laughs> they always complain, like, we can't hear what he's saying. Like, you're good luck. So, so.
So this is the <laughs> Bhakti Yoga Bhakti Yoga right across from Arizona State University. We're trying to please Srila Prabhupada, who has given us such an incredible gift of the ages of the millennia for spiritual understanding, science of the soul. There are fifty to seventy thousand kids across yeah. the street who desperately need it. They just don't know it. It's an onerous task. It's a huge task, but we go one soul at a time, one person at a time, and do our best to please Prabhupada and honor him. And uh, we are so glad to have Vidyananda uh, Aswami, who has done incredible service for Srila Prabhupada. He literally opened up South America, and uh, he's just taken on every kind of format to challenge the atheists and the programmers, the deprogrammers, and everybody in between. Today he's taking it worldwide uh, in a format that uh, um, may be more uh, easy to receive. So we are so happy to have you. Wish you would come back again soon. We'll have a much better audience uh, or, or collection of Sadhu Sanghis here or the people who are interested in this serious topic. Um, with a little bit more notice, yeah. And, and I think we were lucky to have so many of us at a very, very short notice after a long holiday. Um, please come again. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much to all of you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Here in Facebook land, and we're sort of losing the connection. But thank you all very much for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>